to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. His latest story explores what it means for some Afghans to not have humanitarian parole, a special immigration status reserved for those who fled their country on American airplanes in late 2021. Lionel, uh, tell us about humanitarian parole status. What is that? Humanitarian parole, like you said, is an immigration status reserved for uh, really dire emergencies. Commonly, it allows someone who is otherwise inadmissible into the U.S. to temporarily enter the country for things like having to attend to a gravely ill family member or a funeral. Uh, It is also used to allow people fleeing conflict or persecution in their country to remain temporarily in the U.S. if the U.S. deems people from that country eligible. So it's really contextualized with the uh, political situation around the world. Uh, you know, that last or that second uh, kind of humanitarian parole is what was afforded to Afghans who fled their country during the uh, what the federal government calls the Operation Allies Welcome in 2021. All right. So why is that particular designation uh, so special? Well, in the case of many of the Afghans living in Oklahoma today, it made them eligible for federally funded refugee assistance. Uh, that is administered through a few different nonprofits in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and uh, it also made them eligible for state welfare benefits. Uh, that means, you know, they have access to things like Sooner Care, the SNAP, TANF, rental and utility assistance, a cash stipend, and importantly, uh, free immigration legal assistance. Um, originally, Afghans got this designation as they arrived in the U.S., and it was supposed to only last for two years, but the federal government recently extended the status for two more years to allow people who've applied for asylum to be able to be here while they wait. Now, you spoke to a young Afghan couple who did not have the humanitarian parole status. Uh, They have student visas instead. Uh, So they got here. What's the difference? Why does that matter? Yeah, I spoke to Hussein Ahmadi and his wife, Zara Evazi. They uh, you know, both were students in, in Kabul and government workers uh, for the for an, an energy agency, um, part of the government. They have, like you said, student visas because after failing to make it inside the gates of Kabul's airport during the 2021 evacuation, they applied for study abroad opportunities. There's this program, uh, it's a national program called Scholars at Risk, um, which Oklahoma University has uh, a, a chapter of that program. That was one of the programs they applied to, and they got accepted to OU's Scholars at Risk uh, program. They fled Kabul fall of 2022, a year later after after the um, Taliban took over the country, uh, with the help of OU's International Studies program faculty. And that all matters because people with student visas don't get the state and federal assistance that I mentioned a moment ago. All right. Now, so why don't Ahmadi and Ivazi qualify for some of that assistance? Student visas are not an emergency or protected status. They're far more common, uh, you know, and they're not protected even if the recipients got that visa to to flee persecution, right? Because letter of the law, 
doesn't allow for student visas to, you know, um, be administered to people solely fleeing their country um, because of a, of a conflict or, or because they fear persecution. So, you know, just like when someone gets a work or visitor visa, the federal government assumes that person's stay in the country is temporary. The idea is that you come to the U.S. and in this case get a, a graduate degree for both of these people, um, and then you go back to your country of origin. The couple has to either renew their visa by January or apply for asylum and gain protection against removal from the country that way. So how common a situation is this? Do we know how many families are in that same boat? It's hard to tell how many families uh, are in this boat exactly, um, but it's far more common than having humanitarian parole. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, someone gets this work visa or the student visa uh, or this visitor visa and they let it expire and they can't go back to the country for whatever reason. And then they apply for asylum, um, you know, but it's not just a problem for Afghans. There's people from really all over the world, uh, lately Cuba and Haiti, um, Ukraine have all been places where people come from with these kinds of visas uh, and hope to stay here for a much longer term than that. Now, you mentioned applying for asylum. Is that a potential solution for this particular couple? It's one of the only solutions, along with applying for temporary protected status, which is another immigration status that the federal government dishes out uh, that's reserved for people from select countries. But neither solution is ideal. Well, what, what's the problem with those uh, possible solutions for them? The time and money, really. The couple applied for asylum at the start of this month, uh, of October. Unlike their Afghan counterparts who were paroled into the United States two years ago, uh, Amadi and Avasi paid a private lawyer $2,000 to help them file for asylum, and they don't get priority processing. For the parolees, it's free, and they get priority processing through the federal government. Um, now, that's important because the backlog for asylum cases today is over 840,000, and the wait time for a final decision is up to 10 years. So there's also this TPS status, is what it's called, temporary protected status, but that's going to take years as well. Uh, immigration, that I, immigration lawyers that I spoke to have, have told me that some of the parolees who have kind of unique or, or weak asylum cases have applied for temporary protected status in 2021 when they got here, and they're still waiting. So, um, you know, this particular couple, um, why weren't they in with the group that got the humanitarian parole status? Why weren't they on those airplanes with everybody else? They could have been. Uh, they they made various attempts to, to enter the gates of the airport, um, but, you know, where they lived was pretty far from the airport is, is how they explained it to me. And along the way, there were multiple checkpoints of Taliban as well as around the airport and thousands of people trying to get in at the same time. They just didn't make it. They said they tried four times. Um, and when they realized that they, that the last plane had left, that's when they took action and started applying for these various study abroad programs and scholar at risk programs. And when they got accepted, the protocol for that, for the scholars at risk program that they got accepted in, um, calls for them to get a student visa, which again is a visa that really anybody can get. It's not for reserved for people fleeing conflict or anything like that, um, like asylum is or even refugee status, which people apply for in a third country. 
All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read Lionel's coverage of uh, Afghan's resettlement in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest story is about a program that encouraged uh, disadvantaged high school students to attend four-year universities. Uh, Jennifer, the person behind this program is a college professor named Paul Ketchum. Can you tell us a little about him? Sure. Paul uh, is an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, he actually started his career um, as a uh, teaching uh, in a classroom in L.A., uh, middle and high school, and um, mostly studies criminal justice at OU, um, which is kind of interesting. That's how he got his, um, I you know, he started looking into um, high school graduation and um graduates going on to uh, college like OU and um, kind of started hearing some of the same um, excuses for why the kids weren't going as he did in his work with criminal justice. And that's what got him interested in starting this program. Now, the program he came up with focused on Crooked Oak High School. Why that one? Um, so there were a couple of things that made Crooked Oak a good place for uh, him to kind of uh, run this program and um, learn more about this process. It's a smaller, uh, you know, independent school district. It's in Oklahoma City, um, in, in South Oklahoma City. Um, but because it's smaller, um, it's a little bit easier to, um, you know, bring in new programs to have smaller groups of students. Um, and, you know, it's... it's um, mostly low income as about 80% of the students uh, families are low income and it's um, two thirds Hispanic. So that was kind of the population um, that he felt could really benefit from this program. All right. Now you wrote in the story that the program was uh, kind of a twofold deal. What was the first part that it looked at? Right. The first part um, that the program addressed was the academic part. Um, so this is where, you know, he spent time with the students. I mean, he, he taught a class there, um, basically, and, and through that class, um, worked with the kids on um, critical thinking, on, uh, you know, writing essays and papers like they would in college. Um, they worked on tutoring for the ACT to get their scores up, to get them ready to apply for college. So just really kind of shoring up some of the academic deficiencies that they had. And what was the second part? So the second part was more of a culture shift. Um, and that was essentially convincing the students and the people around them uh, that these kids belonged in a four-year university, that they could do it. So uh, Ketchum said that was actually the hardest part of the two, right? Did you uh, find any examples uh, when you reported the story of that culture shift he talked about? He did say that was the hardest part. Um, I think I, Isaiah Caldwell, um, who's one of the um, the people that I interviewed for this story, um, is a good example of that. He was in, you know, one of Ketchum's first classes um, and decided, you know, through that class, did go to OU, um, ended up graduating with degrees in biology and Japanese. And um, he, he wants to go to law school, actually, but decided to come back to Crooked Oak um, and teach for a while and kind of pour into the school that kind of helped him um, 
achieve so much and and get those degrees. So he's kind of carrying on the torch a little bit now and helping um, seniors now apply for OU or OSU or another four-year college. Well, what about Ketchum's uh, other students besides Isaiah Caldwell? Where are they? Right. So he's still tracking them. Um, they're, you know, the, the program at Crooked Oak itself um, is no longer. They um, disbanded that about two years ago. But Ketchum is following the students. Many of them are still at OU working through their degrees. Um, and, um, you know, he he said he's also tracked uh, some of them through OSU and even UCO. Um, a lot of them went there. So um, you mentioned the the program was disbanded in 2021. It sounds like it was pretty successful. Why does it uh, no longer exist? I mean, I think it probably boils down to funding. You know, uh, Ketchum started it as a volunteer and then OU adopted it. Um, there is some financial investment. I mean, they, they do uh, pay tutors. They pay, you know, a professor to come to the high school to teach. Um, they were covering fees um, and certain, you know, expenses for these kids once they were in college. Uh, so there was a cost associated with it. Um, he does say he's planning to um, bring a sim- similar program uh, to Metro Tech uh, in the spring. So he's still hoping to, to continue the work. Uh, what could other school districts learn from this story? I mean, I think one of the main lessons um, that Ketchum kind of learned through this is concurrent enrollment, which is really our state's biggest push for, um, you know, college prep in high schools. Um, it works to a degree, but what Ketchum found was it's not always um, the best model for low-income students who often need more support and more hands-on. I, I think for concurrent, sometimes um, because they're college professors, they tend to be, you know, more hands-off. They expect their students to just kind of do their thing, right? Like they would with a college student. Um, but, you know, the way Ketchum ran his class was more any student could come, um, you know, any student could take the class, even if they didn't qualify for concurrent enrollment. Um, and then, it, because it was a smaller class, they got a lot more um, attention and, and hands-on. And he provided support all the way through college. And that, from the students I talked to, that was absolutely critical too. I mean, you can't just get them accepted and then, you know, say we're good. You know, we did we did what we needed to do. There were a lot of struggles that they had, um, even through college, that needed some um, support. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read uh, Jennifer's story about... Ketchum's work at Crooked Oak High School, as well as all her other coverage of education in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org, where you can also sign up for her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch, and she's here to talk about the latest from the Pottawatomie County Jail, where officials covered up the deaths of detainees in their care. Uh, Whitney, remind us what your original investigation found. Well, in September, I reported that seven people detained at the Pottawatomie County Jail died since the director took over there in 2017. 
all of the detainees came to the jail in need of medical and mental health care, and the jail only reported two of those deaths to the state health department. They've been ignoring families' pleas for answers about what happened. They violated court orders to release information, withheld public documents from us about their governing board, uh, which is a public board. So basically, they're operating in secret. Now, you recently attended a uh, meeting of the jail's oversight board, the trust there, right? What are they doing to address those deaths and ensure the safety of those especially vulnerable detainees? Well, that's a question I've been trying to answer since we originally published the investigation, but there was no mention at the meeting of the people who died, any investigation into those deaths by the board, or any changes that were underway to improve health and safety of detainees at that jail. And uh, we should point out the detainees that we're talking about, this is a county jail. These are uh, people who have not been convicted of anything, right? That's correct. All of these people are presumed innocent. Now, the trustees, if they didn't talk about the uh, deaths of the people in the jail's care, uh, which seems like that would have been a, a hot topic at the moment, uh, what did they talk about instead? Well, the jail's second-in-command was up for his annual annual review, so the board went into an executive session to talk about him behind closed doors. His name is Lieutenant Bobby Thompson. And Lieutenant Thompson, he's the jail's investigator. So basically when these detainees died, he's the guy who investigates the jail's response and reports back to the director, who is his boss, but also happens to be his wife. After that executive session ended and they discussed his performance, the Board of Trustees promoted Lieutenant Thompson to major they gave him a 50 cent per hour raise and a $7,500 bonus. So as far as you know, the jail's uh, oversight board has taken no steps to look into those uh, unreported deaths or hold anyone accountable for those. Instead, they promoted the second in command whose job it is to ensure jailers are taking care of detainees. Is that right? That's right. So who is the jail trust accountable to? Is there anybody above them uh, looking into the cover up or holding the trustees accountable for their oversight role? Well, every jail, uh, county jail in Oklahoma answers to either a trust or the county sheriff, depending on how their county is set up. Sheriffs answer to county commissioners, and those are elected officials. They're the ones who appoint the trustees in counties like Pot County. Uh, but they tell me that they don't think they have any authority in Pottawatomie County over the jail trust, even though the jail does receive some taxpayer money. They're, these uh, commissioners are under the impression that they, they have no control over the trust. The only statewide agency that oversees jails is the state health department, which is charged with ensuring health and safety conditions for detainees. So they go in and do annual inspections at all of the jails. Uh, after I provided them with my findings on Pottawatomie County, they did go there in August, but said they did not find any violations and they have not spoken to the jail since then. I did also speak to District Attorney Adam Painter, and he tells me he's investigating the deaths, but has yet to determine whether anyone will be prosecuted. 
All right, now, since your original story uh, published, you found out there was another death at the Pottawatomie County Jail that you didn't know about when you wrote the original story. What did you learn about that one? That's right. So Carl Schmoozer, he died on September 2nd of 2021. He was 46 and he was transported from the jail to St. Anthony's Hospital in Shawnee, where he died of respiratory issues due to COVID-19. That's according to a medical examiner's report. We don't know much about Carl yet because like many of the other deaths, the jail did not report his death to the state health department. And his death brings the total now to eight detainees under the watch of director Brianna Rochelle Thompson and her husband, Major Bobby Thompson. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, all of Whitney's coverage on vulnerable populations and the problems at the Pottawatomie County Jail on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.